welcome back to the Behavioural Investor. It's been a little while. It's good to be back in 2021 and having survived 2020. Will's busy dressing up in hunting gear at the US Congress, um, hanging out there. So just managed to get him out of um, prison. But he's going to talk about his investing projects and, and what he's been up to lately. Yeah, well, I heard that there was a bunch oh. of uh, US politicians who are trading on their insider information. So I thought I'd go to the source, you know. I don't know how oh, many of the other uh, capital insurrectionists were there with the same goal, but, you know, that was, why, well, that, was, that was why I was going through Nancy Pelosi's desk. Yeah, did you, where did you get that big bullhorn hat that you had on with the, the makeup as well? Where did you buy that? Uh, well, there's actually a surprising number of things you can get in Serbia. Um, as I think I posted on Twitter, uh, I, I managed to find a knife maker, a medieval, uh, fr from a medieval um, festival at a castle. I, I met a knife maker and um, yeah, there were there were a few other things for sale there. So the guy just makes knives for a living? Yeah, he's got, you know, Instagram account, Facebook page for his business and um, he basically well, does it full time now. Was well, a whole bunch of different knives, like everything from knives you use in the in the kitchen through to hunting and um, ninja knives and stuff. Yeah, every, everything from little pen knives, and I, I bought a few as Christmas gifts for for the, uh, my friends and my wife's friends in Serbia, um, up to yeah, um, hunting knives like um, crocodile dundees. There were a couple that were basically daggers. Yeah, okay, nice. Um, do you want to give his site a plug? Yeah, we'll definitely put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, yeah, recommend it. It's really nice to find someone who's like an old old craft or, or art like that. And he's, yeah, he's a cool guy. So, yeah. And he was, uh, he was supporting himself? Because uh, I think this is an interesting topic. Most of us think that we need to sit, be desk jockeys or become um, Wall Street analysts or, or entrepreneurs to be um, successful. But, I mean, I guess you could call knife-making an entrepreneurship, a small business. But I, I think maybe um, something was lost in translation, but it's it seemed, he, he seemed to tell me that he had quit his job. I think he was a tradesman. And he was making knives and selling them full time. Yeah, I, I like it too. I mean, and he like with websites like Etsy and Shopify, and you can sell stuff directly from Instagram. He's basically like the entire world is his marketplace. Tell you yeah. what, it doesn't matter what your niche is or your interest. You, if you really do want to do it you should be able to pursue it and make some sort of career out of it. I was talking to a guy at work the other day and I said, what did you do over the Christmas break? And he said, oh, not much. They just sort of hang around the house and went swimming, those types of things. But then he said, oh, he's got a sheepdog and he took the sheepdog. And yeah, he just lives in suburban parts of this city. He took the sheepdog up to a farm that runs sheepdog, sheep herding training days. So you take the sheepdog, your city dog, and take it out to this farm that has sheep and they teach it over a couple of hours how to herd, if that's the right term, herd sheep. He said, oh, it's fantastic. You know, it cost him $60 for an hour. I said, yeah. running a business doing that. And he says, oh, these guys do. They obviously get enough business and enough people coming up with their dogs, you know, either Kelpies or sheepdogs, and they make a buck out of it. Yeah, great. I'm, I'm just having a look. 
there's a, a medieval sort of reenactment society in Serbia called White Eagles Serbia. That sounds a little bit. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I was, well, I, I was mentioning things that might be lost in translation. <laughs> um, that sounds like they're about to um, go on a pogrom or something <laughs> with all their knives they've made up. I'm just on his uh, page now. Yeah. Sasa Kusic. Sasa Kusic is, is his name. And that, is that the name? What does that say? No, no, Ziva. You just moved it. But. It might be Shasha Kulšić. Um, yeah, here we go. So it's S A S A is the first name. S A S A, and then surname is K U S I C K U S I C. Yeah, that's the one. Knives that look extremely dangerous. Um, yeah, I remember holding one of these. I didn't buy one of those, but yeah. If you're listening to this podcast and you're looking to buy a knife, don't buy one to cause harm to other people. True. Um, I need to open the door. Hang on. I'm back. I see Sasa is also friends with um, one of the characters out of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it. Stands to reason. Here's his photos. Which one's him? Okay. This guy. Yeah, when I met him, he had this awesome hat like a, a pelt rather than felt. It's literally like the, the the fur of a cat, including the fur on the face, whiskers, ears and all, with little oh. holes where the eyes were on his face or on his head. So it's it's great. <laughs> we should also promote him on Twitter. I think we send that photo. Okay. This is a real man, like literally. <laughs> What a guy! He's wearing the, he's wearing basically everything but the guts of another animal on his head, and he makes his own knives and goes to medieval festivals in old castles on the Danube. I mean, that's awesome. That is, that's the type of photo that goes viral. Um, <laughs> well, I've got a photo with him wearing that hat. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Uh, on on other crazy things. Bitcoin's at $40,000 at the moment. Um, I know yeah. that you're big on, big on Bitcoin, or have been. I was. We remember the good old days of late 2017 when all these Bitcoin and um, cryptocurrency IPOs were coming out and we were investigating them and watching people's YouTube um, presentations on their coins that they were developing and how it was going to revolutionize everything. But it's interesting, like if you had it kept, even if you bought at the peak back then, I think it got to a peak of what, 24,000 or something. It's still pretty good returns, you know, 24,000 to 40 over a three year period. That's right. Yeah. What did we do? We sold. Yeah. Can, can you see my screen now? I can screen. So you've got Bitcoin. Then in the first column, then second column, you've got cost, then you've got currency, what currency denominated in, converted and exchange. Yeah. So let's talk about this. What 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 do we see? So in the first column, can you just say what all those different numbers are, what they represent underneath? So Bitcoin. Yeah, sure. So in column uh, A, there's each of the transactions that I managed to extract basically from the email notifications from the three exchanges that I bought Bitcoin from in uh, 2017 and 2018. So the amount of Bitcoin you bought. Yeah. So positive values is where I bought it and negative values is where I sold it, um, basically for the purpose of 
are converting it to Australian dollars to um, bring back into my bank account. Um, and supposedly. So just to be clear, you started off, you bought 0.14 of a Bitcoin, and then you bought 0.5 of a Bitcoin, and then another 0.5, then a 0.78 and so forth, is that correct? Yeah, yep, that's right. And I've got in column B the cost in whatever currency it was, column C is the currency, and column D I've converted it all to Australian dollars using the correct exchange rate at the time of the transaction. Um, that's because when I started, I was in Kuwait and there was this little, believe it or not, um, this uh, enterprising Kuwaiti who'd uh, yeah, set up a, an exchange called Bitfills because fills is basically you've got Kuwaiti dinars, which is like dollars, and fills, which is cents. Paying uh, fills for for bitcoins, um, but I, I definitely paid more than more than some fills. I paid yeah. Well, for the first first time I did it was four hundred Kuwaiti dinars, which at the time was eighteen hundred Australian dollars. That was my first uh, transaction. Yeah, so, and I've got. What was the, what was the yeah. maximum amount of Bitcoin you had at one point in time? looks like it'd be about three the total amount that i purchased was five or so if you don't include the ones that i sold so in in the first column and in, so in column a and column d positive values is where i i purchased it negative values is where i sold it so that i can put all in one column i can calculate all in one column the total amount that, that went in and out and thereby um ultimately how much i lost so, so basically yeah that number under there in column d yeah wow that, that's a big loss isn't it yeah i i knew i knew it was about that much um but it's actually about uh 30 more than i thought that i lost and i i wanted i've been i've basically i i've known i've had this number in my head for about two years because i knew that it was about that much but i was always afraid to actually calculate how much it was but I, you know, because we've had a second massive bull run, there's, there's this guy at my my new job who um, mentioned that he's also into trading Bitcoin. And yeah, he said how, how much he lost at one point in the 2018 drawdown. And I, I told him, you know, I, I've, I, I lost uh, about 50% more than he did. Um, mm -hmm. It prompted me to figure out exactly how much it was just because this is like the final step in me coming to terms with but also learning from this uh intensely emotional th this experience that was essentially characterized by emotional override after emotional override and this is basically this the start for me of this the story of this podcast and and getting the right behavior and the right temperament because i made so many errors um from the perspective of temperament and behavior uh, in, in the 2017 Bitcoin bull run. And, and you're definitely not alone in, in, in terms of having lost money either in Bitcoin or in markets. I, I've mentioned to you in the past that I've lost lots of money, num numbers multitude of what the number that you've lost there in uh, the margin calls during the 2008 global financial crisis so it's so painful and mine wasn't mine wasn't an emotion wasn't necessarily an emotional sale on mine i was forced because i had a margin loan um yeah so, so uh, there's definitely emotions involved with it but something that i'll yeah 
borrow on margin, at least not to the amount of leverage that I had. Yeah, I've I've heard that margin loans is basically a guaranteed way to lose money in the stock market. And yeah, what's I hate to quote Warren Buffett, but you know he pretty much is the most well known person for for saying you know never invest with borrowed money. So yeah, it's interesting. This is not to blame you or anything or say that you should have known, but yeah, it, it's interesting to hear. You're an example of, um, unfortunately, <laughs> um, of what can happen if you don't heed that advice. Can you work out what the weighted average price of you bought the Bitcoins at was? Uh, I, I think it was even more painful. <laughs> and what <laughs> if you um, had kept, I mean, you, could, you don't have to work out the weighted average, but you could still work out how much you would pay if you had kept oh i think you've done that have you down the bottom yeah so so i I could do all of that because i've got the dates there but this is this is not 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 for bragging rights but i think um as as part of as part of the story and to to burn this into for motivational purposes um i'd actually like to to be honest about how much i lost and i i think because Another thing you always hear in, on FinTwit or in, in the investing sort of media is you've got to lose some money. You've got to get burnt. And then that teaches you to actually pay attention and become, you know, to learn the fundamentals, do a value investing course, whatever. I mean, it's so funny. I, you know, I'm, my, my story is so stereotypical. You know, I lost a bunch of money because of emotions. I then spent a year training myself and getting familiar with how to analyze a business using based on fundamentals. And now, you know, this year I'm gradually easing into um, actually deploying, you know, what remains of my capital. <laughs> but yeah, so the the total amount of Bitcoin that I actually bought over the period from June 2017 to January 2018, so basically a six month period was five and a half Bitcoin. The total amount of Australian dollars that I spent on that was thousand dollars. Yeah, so you bought sixty thousand. How many did you get? Five and a half, did you say? Yeah. And you bought bought them basically at twelve grand each. Yeah. Um, um, and there was two instances where I basically spent one one where I spent twenty thousand bucks and one where I spent fifteen. And I remember I bought at the very top, basically in Jan, and this is the key, right? So this is where the emotions and the emotional overrides come in and that you get the fear of missing out. And there's all the certainty that an amateur investor feels um, from seeing the price going up and up every day. And that just increases your certainty as an amateur. And it, you know, you, you feel like you're missing out. So you, you just want to get in. So I was, I was this totally naive um, emotion driven uh, investor, so-called, at the time and so what have we got yeah so there was one in on the 23rd of of december 2017 where i spent twenty thousand dollars and that only gave me 0.61 bitcoins and remember this is australian dollars that must have been the the top because if if you were to divide all the numbers in that column d by the bitcoin in column a you'd have the price that you paid at each point yeah, on average it was eleven thousand two hundred per Bitcoin. But yeah, there might also I bought it on independent the independent reserve exchange. So because the, the prices per exchange differ, um, and the prices can be 
but anyway they were quite different across different exchanges weren't they mm. yeah so but i did manage i did sell it I, I sold so the way i sort of worked it out i just went to the exchanges where i purchased it and there was only so there were three exchanges that i bought it on coin tree which is an australian one Bitfills, the Kuwaiti one, and Independent Reserve, the other Australian one. But there was only one where I sold it from that exchange, brought it back into my Australian account, and that was Independent Reserve. And there was only three instances where I did that, and that was in July. So, so basically, there was there were two sort of times when I, I got into Bitcoin. One was after a, a friend of mine in Kuwait. You know, she was pretty heavily into Bitcoin and had been, I think, since the start of 2017. Um, and she told me at a party how well she'd been doing and I sort of you know my ears pricked up and at the time uh I think it was about 2000 US dollars per coin and sort of pretty much immediately after I purchased it it dropped down to 1800 and as we know now from all the reading we've done about uh and the interviews we've done I felt that loss two to three times more than an equivalent gain. So I felt that it had gone down to uh, 1400 rather than 1800. So I, and because I hardly knew anything about Bitcoin and I thought, you know, it was just gambling and ultimately it was meaningless and worthless. I, for me, that was a sign of the top. And so I sold it all. So I basically sold my initial uh, purchase yeah, I, I think I sold everything, 3200 Australian dollars in at the end. By the end of July, I was totally out. And yeah, I decided that I hated Bitcoin. I was jealous of everyone that had made money and I wanted it to go down more, you know, so that I could buy it, you know, when it was the same price that it was at the start of 2017, things like that. I think the the only, I, I, I sold all, because I bought a few altcoins too. I The only one that I left in the market was Neocoin which at the time was thought of as basically the Chinese Ethereum. And I, I think, you know, there was like a thousand bucks left that I, I had there and I just left it there for, for basically for entertainment, for the sake of entertainment. And then I think around about November, 2017, it started coming up in the news. Like I'd totally forgotten about it. I, I banished it entirely from my mind. You know, that was, it was like a combination of, of jealousy, but also fear at this amount that I'd lost and how, and because it's all so foreign and, there's a lot of complexity, like there's all these strange exchanges that are kind of dodgy. You know, I, I just, yeah, I sort of ran, ran for the hills, really. But at the same time, I knew that a lot of people had made money and I was jealous of them. So there was a lot of emotions involved, is what I'm saying. But overall, I, I banished it from my mind until it came up in the news and some other people, random friends that didn't know about Bitcoin and, and those sorts of things, you know, the equivalent of, of your taxi driver started talking about it. And I, I went and checked how much the, that $1,000 worth of Neocoin was, and it had gone up five times. So what I, you know. That? June 2018. So that was uh, 2017, no, November 2017, around about. Okay. So that's when it yeah. really. Yeah. And that's, so you, you remember that Facebook Messenger group I started, and like I got everyone in, and I was trying to, like, I remember, I, I'll never forget this call I had with you where I was trying to, I was trying to convince you. I was saying, you know, like, we're, it was, I don't think I used the term, like we are in the information age, that's that's for sure. But I was basically saying to you, you know, like everything's digital now, like we've got, you know, robotic banking tellers, you know. Do you remember that call I made with you? I remember a couple of um, couple of calls we had, but I also remember one plea from you to the to the broader group in, in I think it was the Facebook group that we had from you that said, Come on, guys! We've got to crack this. This is so. There's so much on stake here. Yeah. 
there was a real desperation for us to somehow crack the code or, or work out a way to which invest in which random cryptocurrency and we're looking at ripple and the litecoin yeah, I and, and I come on guys we've got to do this yeah i remember i had all these trading like on trading view you can um get these like trading signal um scripts and stuff and actually the only purchase i ever made was using some i think it was tron or some other random um shit coin to um pay this uh developer like the equivalent of a hundred australian dollars for some code or, or some scripts on trading view that gave signals based on essentially extrapolation of um or momentum um of of the movement in price and yeah that was the only purchase i ever made using cryptocurrency question do you think there's anything that's similar between that November, December period in 2017, current period that we're going through, you know, other than Bitcoin hitting, is there something happening in the culture that's similar periods? There's a lot of unrest at the moment, mental unrest and, and emotional unrest in, in society, I feel at the moment with everything that's happening in the US, all the conspiracy theories, um, the media and that. But I don't know, I can't, when I think back to 2017, I was a job, I don't remember anything in particular, either in that sense or where, whether we were in a strong economic boom at that time or not. And we're also in one at the moment as well. Yeah, I can't remember either. All I, to me, the only reason it became so popular, I think, is because it essentially bubbled up to $10,000 per coin. And then suddenly the entire world's media started talking about it to the point where I think I heard a story about a Vietnamese woman in a village who wanted to buy some Bitcoin. And to me, like I remember this has to be the top. Like that to me was the sign that literally everyone knew about it and probably everyone who could had somehow put their money into it. So basically what that means is there's no more money that can go into it. So it's not going to go up any further. And yeah, that's, I think I, I heard about that in something like January or, or February, 2018. And it basically went down for, you know, the next, well, I think about, about really three bucks. What what's reinvigorated the growth this time? Is uh, well, in the stock market yeah yeah the stock like there's been a huge boom from all the stimulus but also so th there is a case for bitcoin we're in a in some ways we've got a new companion now you know we've got the as we talked about in in one of the uh episodes that wasn't an interview there's the transistor now we've had that since 1959 50 years later in 2009 this fake character satoshi nakamoto released bitcoin which is a, a kind of currency in in a way that that the the, the transistor and, and computers that depend on or that use transistors in the way that they can produce a currency which is basically computer files that are hard to duplicate and therefore to spend twice if you're using those files for the purpose of spending money but is that a problem in with the current currency that we have? 
Do people spend their dollar twice? I don't think that's a real problem that Bitcoin solves. Well, you can if you can counterfeit the currency. Yeah, but that doesn't really happen, does it? Yeah, that's right. But so 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 what happened in 2009 when um, this character Satoshi processed or issued the first block, the Genesis block, so-called, is what you can do with each block that you process is you can put a message in. And the message in the in the Genesis block is a reference to a an article in the, the Times in the UK about quantitative easing and the fact that a whole bunch of new, I guess, pounds were created because that back in 2008 was the great financial crisis, right? So the he released it when the world was just starting to recover. My understanding is that the one thing that's attractive about Bitcoin is that it's deflationary. It's not inflationary. It's kind of set up so that as time goes on, there's fewer and fewer Bitcoins available. So if they become valuable to people as time goes by, the way that it's configured means that they're going to go up in value rather than down, which happens with currencies where central banks are issuing or engaging in quantitative easing. So what happened this year or 20 in 2020 was trillions of dollars of stimulus, right? So what you saw with the smart so-called smart money, and there are supposedly some smart financial people who are, are finally buying Bitcoin, was them citing the, all of the quantitative easing as a reason to purchase Bitcoin because there's a risk that with so much new money being printed, the US dollar is going to catastrophically drop in value. But of course, there's all the FOMO and there's the emotional reasons. Like I, I didn't think, oh, there's been a bunch of money printing so in, in 2017, so I was going to go and buy Bitcoin. I, don't, I barely even understand how money printing works, let alone use it as a basis to, for my investing decisions. I only bought it because everyone else was buying it and it was going up in value and people had made millions of dollars off of a small amount invested and I wanted to do the same. But at the same time, like most amateurs, you know, I was a chicken and I only, the more, more it went up, the more confidence I had, which is the opposite of what you should be doing. Yeah. And I got, got taught a lesson. So just to finish the full accounting, if you like, of my, my mistakes. So I only ended up... Uh, actually withdrawing about $22,000 of what I had invested. So I left $38,000 in the brave hands, the ones who had bought, uh, for example, at the beginning of 2017, and then waited for all of the emotionally overridden uh, amateurs like me who couldn't control their behavior by and pay them for their patience at the top at the end of 2017. Come back to what I was saying in the, those couple of texts that I sent you. The success or failure of Bitcoin is not necessarily dependent on its ability to be, a, as you said, deflationary currency or a currency that, that doesn't inflate because it's limited to 21 million of them. It is really dependent on how many people decide to believe the narrative and the worth of it. So it all comes back to narrative. And the reason that you purchased them, and I purchased some of them as well, not, not nowhere near as much as what you did, but was because I, you can call it hype, but it's narrative. And if you're going to believe in the future of Bitcoin, you just have to believe that other humans will believe in that narrative into the future as well. And you can say that about anything, but I, something it's hard to know in 10 years or 100 years from or sorry, not 100 but 
10 years or 20 years from now whether people will still believe in that narrative or not. Yeah, well, in addition to the narrative, like I remember the name of the Facebook Messenger group that we had, it was called eMoney Investments. And like there was, I, I, I at least, I did have faith, well, I had this belief that, well, like I wasn't totally naive. I knew that a lot of the initial coin offerings were total bullshit. Um, and, you know, there was like um, back then, that was when Silk Road was um, was still operating. And like Silk Road was basically a, an eBay for, for drugs and assassinations, and, like all, all these terrible things. Um, and knife, and, knife sellers as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if our, our friend Kusic, Kusic was, uh, was yes, <laughs> maybe maybe he got his start selling to uh, Serbian drug dealers. So. <laughs> We'll, we'll, uh, we'll send you the link at the bottom of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll also put the link to Silk. But I think the FBI finally took down Silk Road um, and they found the guy who was running it. But the thing is, like, actually, an, an, a use case for Bitcoin, or the, the ones that were in the news at least, were um, every, like everything on Silk Road was paid for using Bitcoin. And there are also those ransomware attacks, um, like including on some hospitals in the UK, for example, um, where basically your whole your computer was locked unless you paid the ransom, and that had to be paid in Bitcoin. So you know, obviously, all of those things were on my mind. But at the same time, I, 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 I like I, I think I might have read the um, the Bitcoin white paper from from Satoshi, and you know, I, I, I read a bit around the, the philosophy of, of creating a digital currency, and I, I genuinely believed in it. Or at least I believed that it was a good idea to try to to invent a new money where that was totally electronic. Yeah, I don't know where I'm sort of going with this. I guess I uh, and I remember settling on XRP Ripple because Ripple like it was all about. So yeah, now I remember what I was going to say. So because what happened in 2017, 2018, like in December, was basically the whole world was trying to buy Bitcoin, but it took sometimes days for transactions to happen because there were so many people trying to trying to buy it and transfer it around that um, the Bitcoin miners uh, could demand more for the processing fee. So to get your 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 transaction processed um, quickly, you'd have to pay more. So basically, what what everybody suddenly realized was it transferred really slowly. It cost a lot to do transfers. Um, like it was sixty bucks to transfer something like you know a coffee's worth of Bitcoin. So basically what the world suddenly realized was it was totally useless as a currency. And, and I, like, I still have like what I was when I wasn't sort of emotionally overridden with greed. I was genuinely looking for the, the currencies that I was researching were, were ones that had fast transaction times or that were free, cost nothing to, to do the transactions. But yeah, what I sort of realized and what I still haven't seen in, in the past two years that I've sort of known about Bitcoin is I haven't haven't seen anyone really you know making any purchases with it. It's not a currency still, and there aren't any other no other cryptos have become currencies either. All we've seen is that Mastercard and Visa and PayPal have continued. The stock prices of those have continued to rise, and now you know my Apple Watch I can pay for things using my Mastercard with my Apple Watch. So if anything, normal money has become electronic money and more even more so 
do you think someone could craft a, an analysis to you and, and they won't, won't be susceptible to it now that I'm actually ask, asking the question, but if, could someone create a narrative that would convince you to purchase Bitcoin again? Um, so what if I was to say, look, actually, I do think Bitcoin is going to be a, a powerful tool in the future. And the main reason is because, no, it won't be a form of currency in terms of easily being able to buy a cup of coffee, but it will be similar to gold. We all recognise that gold is valuable and no one uses gold to buy a cup of coffee or their groceries with. They, they use currency, but um, gold has value. It's had value for hundreds of years. Um, everything that you can say about Bitcoin, you could apply to um, gold as well. And we're just making that evolution into a single currency. And while there are other cryptocurrencies that may have better functionality, what they miss is the narrative and the brand. <clears throat> you know, think about, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, no, I'm convinced that it's good. And so what, what happened in the past week or two was you had Elon Musk and um, uh, Chamath Palihapitiya, uh, two you know, celebrities on Twitter, if not um, in, in the world, <laughs> um, recommend the Signal messaging app. And the Signal messaging app is open source. It's not for profit. And it's designed from the ground up with privacy first. So it, there's some key facts there. It's not a for-profit organization. They're not going to sell your data for anything. They're not going to throw ads at you based on what they've managed to sniff out of your messages with other people. Um, and it's, it's, it's essentially got the public good at the center of it. It's, if nothing else, uh, about protecting the privacy of your communication. What else have we got in terms of a public service that the internet and computers have provided us? We've got Wikipedia. Um, Douglas Adams, you know, one of the, the best authors, you know, ever who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he basically mentioned, you know, in that series how, you know, in the future we will have a guide to the galaxy on a device that fits in our pocket. Well, because of Wikipedia, we have in multiple languages on our smartphones with an internet connection, you can also download presumably Wikipedia for offline use. We now have the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in our pockets. And what is it? It's not for profit. It's open source, um, you know, and it, it's basically there as a public service. And it, it vastly raises the quality of life for humanity because it basically pushes the sum of human knowledge everywhere there is an internet connection. And it's, it's, it doesn't require a high bandwidth. It's just simple text on a page. So it can be lo loaded via a satellite connection in Antarctica, you know, or in the Sahara Desert. You know, it, if someone can understand the language, if they can read, they can, from their mud hut, you know, um, in a tribal context, uh, be at the same level or access, access the same level of, uh, of human knowledge as someone, you know, who's had the best of, of modern civilization and, and education sitting, you know, um, in, in London at some university. So that's, so we've covered communication, uh, we've covered knowledge sharing, but the internet also has a open source, also privacy focused solution for money. And that for better or worse is 
Bitcoin. And it, it's also shown the way for uh, or inspired a bunch of other um, similarly open source, privacy focused, not for profit uh, cryptocurrency. So I guess what, what I'm trying to say is that these are examples of how the transistor within sort of 50 years, let's say, as humanity sort of figure out, figured out how to use them, um, it's resulted in these three uh, amazing advance. So I think there's there's something virtuous and something good and something revolutionary um, about about Bitcoin. And it, like it, maybe it's not going to be Bitcoin. And I think that's what everybody sort of realized. Um, and we still we still know it. You know, it but it's still the fast. The question, the question yeah. I've got with Bitcoin, and as you were saying, that it's quite expensive to be able to transfer it, and it wasn't as quick as what people were hoping it would be in order to make a transfer. But is that just a matter of time before the technology catch, catches up? Um, it sounds like that's an infrastructure problem in terms of um, speed and, and cost. Surely in five years or 15 years, the ability to exchange Bitcoin will be more efficient and effective. Yeah, I, I'm just, um, I just Googled the average Bitcoin transaction time and coin market cap in an article from September 2020, so three months ago, uh, said it takes about 10 minutes. Whereas, you know, using... Why does it take that long? Why does it take minutes, 10 minutes rather than... I don't know enough about Bitcoin. All I know is that there's these mining computers that process Bitcoin transactions in groups called blocks. Uh, essentially, as I understand it, Bitcoin is the integrity of Bitcoin or the avoidance of double spending happens through competitive accounting where you've got uh, a worldwide network of computers. I think the majority of which is actually located in China. And I, yeah, I don't know enough about it to, I'll sound like an idiot if I try to say how it happens. Or... I've just had a look on, on the internet and gone on. But it is a fact, regardless, that the system is too slow. Nobody is going to want to wait 10 minutes at the goddamn coffee shop to pay to pay for a coffee, you know? My point is, is that won't that speed up eventually? Yeah, it would be interesting to see a graph um, over time. But I think actually it used to be really fast, but as it's gotten more and more popular... And I remember there was the Lightning Network. It was all about the Lightning Network at the end of 2017 and how that was going to produce payments that happened instantly. Um, and I, I have maybe the Lightning Network now. Well, it couldn't, it, it, it can't have been implemented because the Lightning Network was supposed to produce instant payments. Um, but if there's still 10 minutes, you know, it hasn't been implemented. And there was always a joke. I, I remember that, you know, the Lightning Network was about to be deployed but that it had been about to be deployed for the past year sort of thing there's someone's response um it says whenever you send someone bitcoins the transaction goes through different computers running the bitcoin protocol around the world that makes sure the transaction is valid once the transaction is verified it then waits inside a mempool in other words as some sort of limbo state it's basically waiting to be picked up by a Bitcoin miner and entered into a block of transaction on the blockchain. Until it is picked up, it's considered an unconfirmed transaction. 
of pending transactions. A new block of transaction is added to the blockchain every 10 minutes on average. However, since there are so many transactions lately due to the price increase, and the block can only hold a finite amount of transactions, not all transactions are picked up instantly. So you need to wait for a certain amount of time until a miner decided to pick your transaction out of all the, those sitting around in the mempool. Once your transaction is included in the block, it receives its first confirmation and it's no longer pending. After another block of transactions is added, it will get another confirmation and so on. So, okay. Yeah, that's right. A new block is, yeah, um, that's right. That's the, the basic transaction time. But yeah, once it becomes too popular, as you said, um, there's not enough space per block to process the transactions here. And that's why you were seeing people paying more for the, as a transaction cost for it to be included in the very next block. Yeah, okay. I th yeah, it sounds to me like it's it's got its problems, but I don't know if they're unsurmountable. Uh, and whether people, the system and enough miners and computer speeds and computer processing power increases enough eventually that um, it solves that logistics problem. Yeah, I, I, I remember when I was doing my research for the information age episode, and I think it was on Wikipedia, there was a comment that what the information age has done is destroy borders because anyone with an internet connection can perform work. So, you know, the, the classic one is outsourcing to India, you know, of call centers, or, you know, I, I remember when I, I worked for an engineering company in Australia, there was a, an office in the Philippines and their work was just as of just as good quality as ours in Australia, but they were paid, you know, a quarter of um, what we were in Australia. So, you know what? What have we got now? What what's what what have these transistors given us now? They've given us a global communication system, Signal, which is not owned by you know not it's not a it's a not for profit um, organization. It's open source, so anybody can compile it and modify it um, and produce their own you know Signal based messaging app. Um, and it has privacy, as I said. So it's essentially, it's an enormous public good. So you um, persuaded about Yeah, we've got Wikipedia and we've got, I'm just trying to like, it, it's actually pretty incredible what we've managed to cobble together in, you know, the, um, what it's been 60 years, basically 61, uh, we're in the 62nd year, are we? Um, since the transistor was, was created. So what humanity has managed to do um, is give itself uh, a global communication system which does text uh, calls and video chat. Um, we've got the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, the sum of human knowledge um, in our pockets. And we do have a currency of sorts, which as you pointed out, has some limitations and, and really, you know, it's only every 10 minutes um, at, at the best of times that you can um, transact with it. but it, you know, it's trustworthy. Like there's the, a perennial sort of joke or a constant joke about Bitcoin. And I remember back again, when I was doing all my research in 2017, there was like a blog or a website which tracks all the news articles, which say that Bitcoin's in a bubble and it's going to crash. And, you know, according to, to these, it is always in a bubble and it's always about to go to zero, but it hasn't, you know, it's been 11 years now 
or 12 years. We're in the 12th year since, since Bitcoin. And it's, it's not at zero. It's at 40,000 damn dollars, you know. Um, Dollar cost is what you should have been doing. Well, that's so that that's the final part of my reconciliation here of my my uh, the results of my emotional override. So um, the amount of Bitcoin that I left on the table that I lost basically was two two point eight five. So if you um, convert that to Australian dollars, I lost in in according to the current value. If I just freaking left it there and not wasted it on shit coins. Um, and lost it all or uh, there's also twelve thousand dollars that i up worth of bitcoin that i couldn't extract from the fast coin exchange there's like this the shittiest little shit coin exchange um called fast coin that uh bitcoin benny this australian youtube channel um he, he recommended it and so of course i went and put like a whole bitcoin in it and i only managed to get you know, 0.75 of that back out. So there's, you know, I lost 12,000 bucks in today's money right there. But so the amount that I lost, if, if, I, if I hadn't have traded at all, if I just held on to it, um, I I lost $143,000 worth of Bitcoin. Yeah. And if, if that 5.5 Bitcoin, um, if, if I just left that 5.5 Bitcoin in there and let it ride and kept it now, I'd have... 250,000, you know, <laughs> worth of Bitcoin now. I'd have a quarter of a million dollars. Oh my so. God, that's painful. That's um, a cheap apartment or a... Uh, you know. That's a Lamborghini Gallardo. That's what really gets me. That was my Lambo, man. <laughs> that's only three years ago as well, which is really painful. It's not like it was 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, that's right. And the cost basis was 60,000. So that's 190,000, you know, so um, yeah, because it's today it's 49,000 Australian dollars per Bitcoin. So if I bought five and a half, that's yeah, three quarters of a million dollars. So we were onto something, but the, so the, the whole point of this for me is that, and it, it's like what you always hear from everyone, all the investing classes, all the courses, all the books, they say, don't try to time the market, just buy something that's good and let the team that's behind it get on with the work and give them time, give them five or 10 years, you know? And the same applies to Bitcoin. If I had just bought it and seen that it was the dominant. So this, we also talked in another episode about the, the blue ocean strategy and the star principle. Can, can you, cause that isn't Bitcoin a classic example of the blue ocean strategy? What do you think? I think it is. It's looking at an existing um, industry and trying to work out where there's not value being added and where, where there is value to be added and trying to address that market. Um, yeah. And, and what is Bitcoin in terms of the start principle? Well, the cryptocurrency niche market is definitely growing at 10% per year and Bitcoin is the dominant, you know, the leader in that niche. So, you know, to me, this is just a fantastic endorsement of the STAR principle. If only I'd known, if only I had applied the STAR principle and realized, shit, all I need to do is buy that leader of the cryptocurrency niche and sit on it, if only. I also think that another important lesson from all this is how you react to 
let's call it failure or loss. And it's the most painful form of self-harm that you can do is to ask yourself the question of why, if I had have just done this back then, I would now have um, so much more benefit or why didn't I just do this back in the past? Because it's an answer, it's a question that will just keep digging away at you mentally. Uh, and it's sort of what you're doing at the moment. If I had have just kept those five and a half Bitcoin, I'd have quarter of a million, $300,000. Um, if I'm so stupid and blah, 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 sort of a form of self-harm. But the real question is always to ask, what should I do now? Should I buy some Bitcoin? Should I? Yeah, I went through some emotional pain, but I'm over it. And I feel proud, actually, that I've finally done this full accounting. I think there's some errors. Like I wouldn't have paid $32,000 for a Bitcoin. So I might do some more digging to figure out exactly how much I lost. I don't know. It was definitely between thirty and forty thousand um, dollars. So yeah, I was. I felt shame, definitely, especially in early twenty eighteen. And you remember when that messenger group blew up? Like we had all these arguments. There was all sorts of personal attacks. <laughs> like really? people... I don't remember that. What were some of the personal attacks? I don't remember that. <laughs> oh, I remember Muhammad. Like he was like giving me shit as he always does and he was great like he was doing his job as a friend you know but because I was feeling under pressure and the shame that I was losing money and I obviously had made emotion driven decisions like it was just too much for me and I think like I I I let his joke sort of get the better of me and I I insulted him back when he wasn't insulting me um but I also remember like I think he left the group and I think my cousin did as well I'm like there was like this moment where my cousin, like he had like a private chat with me. And I, I think he was anticipating that I was about to blame him for losing some money. And I wasn't, but I think he also must've lost a bunch of money. And I think anticipating that I was about to get stuck into him, he laid into me and like, he went on and on and on for like 10 minutes, like talking about all this personal shit. And the thing is like, I had never actually really had that much of a personal relationship with him. Like I didn't know much about him at all. He didn't know much about me, but he was like, he was going nuts. And like, you know, there was a lot of like massive emotional and social breakdowns as a result of, of, yeah, the, um, the, the, the the drop in price um so yeah but like i i don't know I, so yeah i went i went through a period oh, an, another story like i think like it's nice to talk about this finally and just to be it, it's useful i think to to just be totally brutally honest and i wish i'd done it earlier um but like that, another example of the impact that it had on someone was there, was there was this guy at work when i was on my last job in adelaide and you know cryptos just came up in a discussion in the lunchroom one time and just as an example of this pent up emotion and, and rage and fear that that whole um, experience had for people. Like he was also someone who I didn't know much about, but you know, we, were, we were friendly. We, we, we chatted you know, occasionally and we worked together sometimes, but you know, suddenly he like, everyone had left and like lunch was basically over, but he essentially cornered me and told me for like 15 minutes, the whole story of all of, the money that he made and then lost in in bitcoin like he was up hundreds of thousands of dollars but then it dropped 
and I think because it dropped so much, so he made on the way up, you know, to the to December 2017, he made a bunch of money. And then like me, you know, and a lot of us, he dumped it all in shit coins. And he, he then proceeded to lose most of that money. But because all of that is taxed in Australia, he had to still pay, he owed the tax man for the, the gains that he made on the way up, but he didn't have any of the profits left to pay for the, the taxes. So I think what he, he, he told me that he did all of this wash trading or some approach to trading, which um, essentially concealed um, or it made it look like he made a bunch of losses that he didn't make. So he could offset, um, you know, all of these capital losses against um, the gains. So in the end, he didn't have to pay as much tax. But, you know, you could tell by the, the intensity that he had in, in his in his voice, and, you know, on his face, you know, it was a harrowing experience for me, you know, and the fact that he, he just like, he, it was like he was looking around for someone to tell this to. And finally he saw, he saw me, you know, and he found someone who, who, who'd gone through this and, and it just, the floodgates opened. Um, but yeah, like as a result, like that's what it, what it did to me. And, I, and you were a huge help for me here, Ben. I, I basically did that value investing course with Kenneth and like, I knew you know, um, cause after the Bitcoin thing, then uh, with Muhammad, I was getting into, um, you know, uh, the inverse, um, uh, so the, the bull and bear three X bull and bear ETFs. So TVIX, SVXY, UVXY, basically the ones that go up at three times the market going down. Um, but that's all about timing. And I, I think I lost like, 3000 bucks on that or maybe 5000 you know so that was so after the bitcoin stuff but then then it was um yeah these these bull and bear ets with muhammad and i lost another 5000 bucks so you know but it all um basically resulted in me realizing wow you know um there is money to be made here but it's not with all of with this emotional approach that i basically use i think um, like after that sort of lesson and then also the lesson that I had, the global financial crisis, um, less so with Bitcoin, but it helps you clarify what your philosophy for investing should or will be going forward. And so if you're new to investing or you know, whether you call it investing or speculating, everything's open to you. Anything that can have, have the potential to make money, whether it's Bitcoin, current cryptocurrencies, stock market, bonds, uh, casinos, horse races, they're all open in terms of potential opportunities to make money. But if you develop a philosophy either through loss or through just your own self-maturity and intelligence, <clears throat> you close off a lot of those um, through, through wisdom. You close off a lot of those so that you don't actually end up exploring them um, and th that's a good thing to do, I think. Um, and so if you end up, I know we're eventually going to talk about your, your framework, whether we do it tonight or whether we do it in the future. But I, I think somewhere in that framework would be ideally a philosophy or a, a criteria for what you will will not invest in. And it can be based on past experience. Like if you were to have cryptocurrencies within scope, then you need to be really mindful of the amount of emotional um, weight it can put onto you, yourself. Um, in addition to the lack of um, 
other other form of other form of financial benefits that it can create because you know the, one of the main reasons that Warren Buffett doesn't invest in gold or cryptocurrencies is because he sees them as pure pure speculation that don't they're not things that generate something they don't generate um, earnings they don't generate in them in themselves any sort of profit that can be redispersed back out into shareholders and that's why he doesn't play that game at all at least that's what he said so yeah look i just don't think that i'll ever give so never say never but i don't think i'll go back into cryptocurrency um and i'll definitely won't go back into margin loans that's for sure tell us more about these margin loans if, if you don't mind i mean i don't know enough to um yeah discloses you can disclose as little or as much as you want but how did you get into them and who, who uh, convinced you to do it? Uh, was it your own reasoning? Oh, it's definitely my own reasoning, just really thinking about wanting to have large amounts of money and, and wanting to play the long game. My, that's been my, even with shares, I haven't been specky. I've always um, been looking to play the long game. I just thought if I could have a bigger asset base now, as in when I was taking on margin loans, then over the longer term, that asset base, given all the ups and downs of the market, would eventually be a bigger amount of money than what I could do on my own. The, I have to try and remember what sort of interest rates I was paying, but it wasn't that bad. It was maybe seven to eight, seven percent um, interest per annum on it. Uh, and my my back of the envelope calculations was as simple as, you know, if you can get 7% out of the market plus one or 2% dividend that covers those. And then over the long term, you know, the, the asset builds up. Um, I didn't purchase index. I purchased specific companies and they were reasonably blue chip companies. They weren't too specky or anything, but when the market dropped, um, once you get below a certain ratio between the assets that you hold and the liability that you also hold back to, then you have to either do one or two things, sell some of the shares or put more assets, in other words, cash into the into that uh, portfolio. Uh, and the market, it just, um, I, I was playing at that time with hundreds of thousands of dollars. So wow. the, the impact was um, very large. So as I said, uh, I haven't calculated exactly, but I'd say three to four times the amount that you lost uh, in Bitcoin. Wow. Yeah. And so, that would have felt, because what I just realized, because so, we feel the loss two to three times more than an equivalent gain, right? So I basically lost $38,000. So that felt like $120,000 that I lost. I think, you know, that like, I literally was afraid. It was, it was a period where I used to think about how much I lost, but also because I knew it was so much and I so was so ashamed about it, I was afraid to actually calculate it. So it's, it's really, you know, it's January 2021 now, and it was in 2018 that that loss happened January. So it's, it's taken me three years to overcome that pain enough, you know, and, and plus, you know, it, it's so funny because it was when I went to Qatar that um, the, the price reached an all time high. And now I'm back in Qatar with a new job and 
lo and behold, the price has reached another all-time high and it's double the previous all-time high. There's some really interesting, you know, synchronicities that are going on here. Um, but yeah, so, so that means that loss that you made, it would have felt astronomical. Oh, it was devastating. It was... Um... Yeah, the psychological impact, because you, you multiply that real loss by a lot more. You must have... You must have been feeling bad for years. Um, yes and no. I think um, it's devastating in a way, but uh, I don't know if, whether it was over years. I know there were some particularly bad days uh, at, at that time when I was still working at um, the uh, corporate advisory firm that I, I work for in Brisbane. Um, I don't know. It's yeah. I definitely felt terrible, and I, that's why I definitely think that it's it's just too risky. I, I don't. I don't think it's better to. It's better for me. It's better to be secure and earn eventually fifty thousand dollars passive income than try to be risky and earn um, you know, great riches. Uh, I think if you're gonna, you, I, I think that I need to, or most people need to take a stepped approach to investing, and the first step has got to be, you've got enough money, to pay for your food and accommodation. If you can't get those basics covered, then you're in big trouble. So you shouldn't be running around taking on debt to get loans for whether it's cars or shares or clothes or other things. You need to get to first base and then once you've got that covered then you need to start thinking about well how can i what's the next step is it you know securing a house for yourself or is it um just having spare cash in the bank um and the individuals will, will decide for themselves what that next step is but then as you get up the steps then you may decide that you want to open yourself to more and more um different types of investment some that might be speculative in nature, but I think you need to go a fair few steps up, up the stairwell or up the ladder before you play in speculative areas such as cryptocurrency or even the stock market. Yeah, I think where I was going before and in response to your question about whether Bitcoin is legitimate and you know whether I might be convinced to buy it again, I guess I'm happy to be able to say or, or respond somehow vaguely intelligently with the observation that you can apply the star principle to it and it comes out the other end looking good so I, that it's maybe i wouldn't purchase it solely based on that but i think it's reasonable to say that the cryptocurrency niche is growing at 10 percent, and i think it's also reasonable to say that bitcoin dominates that niche yeah are they the two main criteria of the star principle aren't they yeah, and also, to me, like I, you're the one that read the Blue Ocean strategy, but my limited understanding is that you know if you're going to be an entrepreneur or a good good way to, to to run a business is to basically invent a category and have have your business be the one that you know can basically come to dominate that Blue Ocean, if you like. Am I? Is that right? You want, you know, the idea around blue ocean is you don't, you want to be in a blue ocean. You don't want to be in a red ocean. A red ocean is where there's lots of competitors fighting each other and causing blood in the water. You want to identify a new market that you can play in 
um, by yourself so you don't have the competitors and um, you, you get oversized profits from that. Uh, you, obviously, that new market has to, there's only a new market if it satisfies a need, if it adds value to, to other humans. Um, so you can look at existing industries and see how they're servicing customers um, and see where they're not servicing customers and, and try to create a new market out of that. And yeah. I, I do agree. I'm just trying to work out what is the market that Bitcoin is serving. If it's not a form of currency, and potentially it's a digital version of gold. The other thing that it could be, and not many people think about this, is that it's serving a, a narrative market for humans. People want to believe in certain stories and there's a story of Bitcoin and it's it's about it's a fantastic story because no one knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is yeah and that's right it's, it's, it totally meets the whole anonymous thing of the internet you know this hacker yeah being able to transact across borders no one government can't trace your transactions and all of these sort of things also you feel like a total badass when you have bitcoin because like there's all these like obscure exchanges and there's these like well bitcoin wallets and like when you have to try to explain it to people like you know they sort of they don't really get it but they kind of think that you're cool because you know you're brave enough to you know dabble in it um and also it's really complex because you know the nobody can like your 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 bank account number is hard enough to memorize but your bitcoin wallet address is like you know i don't know like 50 characters long um it, there's a whole you know there's a whole lot of sort of you know coding and internet and hacking badassery that it sort of um th these images you know it invokes these images and it also benefits from from just being new, something that's new and novel. Uh, I think um, that's that works in its favour. I, I know it's been around for 10 years, but 10 years isn't a lot, very long when you compare it to other currencies or, or the standard um, of gold or, or currencies that we use to exchange. So it's new, it's novel, it's got that story. So maybe the value in the not the 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 value of Bitcoin is not so much in its form of currency or even its sort of storage of wealth. It's because that, that storage of wealth is just reflected in its price and the price is reflection of, it's not a reflection of anything else other than the narrative and the story that people want to believe. Um, so I think like if you were going to apply the blue ocean strategy thinking towards Bitcoin, it's the story of Bitcoin is the value of Bitcoin. Um, so look at the market. A big part of, sorry to cut you off, but I, I think we, if we're going to talk about narrative, we have to talk about liberation. And, you know, when I was listening or doing the, the season one recap, um, I mentioned the word liberation a couple of times in the first couple of episodes, starting with when I interviewed you about the compounding plan that you came up with. Um, I like, the whole idea of starting a currency, which doesn't depend on a, um, a bank or doesn't depend on an army or the dominance of one particular country, but it's just, if you like, it's an emergent property of the internet or an emergent property of humans' interactions with or use of um, transistors. There's something 
that sounds like liberation to me. And it sounds like a whole new world, you know, uh, a key sort of, like you always hear about, you know, on Bitcoin forums and stuff like that. People say, you know, well, it, it's, you know, it can't be controlled. And that the fact that it can't be controlled and there's no, um, there's no slavery, there's no subjugation, there's no oil wars, you know, there's no manipulation from central banks in a way it's, it's, it, essentially, Bitcoin is just a mathematical formula um, that, you know, um, is recursively applied, you know, by transistors. And it's so cold. It's so, it's just, it's a calculation. And it's, in a way, it's elevated above the bullshit of humanity. And it will just keep on cycling on, you know. I think that's, people, people recognize that it is, it's above the tribal rubbish of humanity in a way. Mm. I, I feel like that's a strong part of the narrative and that's how it can gain some legitimacy for people. And that's why I was sort of bringing up, it, discussing it in the context of Wikipedia and Signal, these other two sort of fundamental things about how, you know, what we do as humans, you know, we're, we're basically about gaining knowledge and applying that to make our lives better. We're also basically about, you know, if we couldn't communicate, well then, you know, um, we die, you know, and so what what we've managed to put together for ourselves as a as humans working on this big project globally together for, you know, 60 years since um, the transistor came along was now we do we have, you know, um, a communication app that is outside the control of or, or it, it's, 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 it's like a public, a global public service signal. It's the same with Wikipedia and it's the same with Bitcoin. And, and what have you got also as a result of the information age, which is where these three things emerged from or what, what was what resulted from the transistor? Um, well, you've, you've genuinely got a world without boundaries now, without borders. Um, you know, you, you, can, you can go along, you, you could set up a business which uses signal to communicate with, with, with your team members and, and your customers. You could base your the technology or whatever the business is based on. You could set it up using knowledge gained from Wikipedia and you could um, receive payment using Bitcoin. And all of that, that entire system could emerge without the interference of a government, uh, without recognizing borders, the entire planet, people around the planet could be your customers um, and the payments that you receive would be entirely uh, outside of or um, invisible to the, the taxation. Is that right? I think so. I think so. If, if you didn't convert it to, oh, no, it would be taxed, wouldn't it, at least in Australia. Do they know whether you've done it or not? They don't have an access. To, do they have access to the records? I don't know. I'm just wondering, like, if you didn't convert it to Australian dollars, would that be taxed? Like, if you if you converted it to some other cryptocurrency? Now, I think it's because they're all assets, so there's a capital gain regardless of the currency, as far as I'm aware. Um, so Te technically, as opposed to theoretically. Yeah, but then there. So so what happened? Yeah, the the, the big. Just to finish off that point. So at the end of 2017, after the bull run. The smart money, if you like, in, in the crypto space, everyone was buying um, the privacy coins. And those ones meant that you could do your transfers in an untraceable way. So the point of that was that you could dodge the tax man by concealing 
where you transferred your um, your cryptocurrency to. Right. I've got yeah. um, a, an interesting thought experiment, and I only just thought of it now, so it's quite unformed. Let's say the Catholic Church said, and it doesn't have to be the Catholic Church, it could be Buddhism or it could be um, any other form of Christianity or even Islam, for example. Let's say one of them said, we're going to list on the stock exchange. Um, we're going to issue shares. Um, we're not going to change our basic business. And I don't want to get into some of the bad things that have happened in religions in, in the sense of, um, but some of the, you know what I'm talking about, bad things. Um, but they're going to, they say we're going to continue with our mission, which is spreading the word, um, expanding, getting new people into our religion. <clears throat> Would you buy, but we're still going to play as more or less as a not-for-profit. So, you know, the money is not going to be shelled out as a dividend. Would you invest in the, buy those, would you buy those shares? Let's say it's the Catholic Church and I just choose that at random. And, and I don't mean it in the sense of would you invest in that because um, you are either pro or anti the Catholic Church, just choose another religion if, if you're particularly not keen on them or choose another philosophy like um, Buddhism, which is a bit more of a philosophy rather than a religion. Um, would you buy those shares? And why would you? Are you getting at the point that um, Bitcoin might be a religion or the narrative aspects might essentially be characterized as a religion? Like you'd explain it as a religion more succinctly than any other phenomenon? Yeah, and I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't want to classify Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency as a religion. It's, I'm swaying more towards the side of that narrative that I talked about. Why do people join a religion? Often they're just brought up in that society, in that culture, so it's just a natural part of their life. Um, but some people do decide to go into religion. Uh, and fundamentally, you would think that the reason is because they believe in the story of that religion. Uh, there are side benefits as well, uh, and that, that those of community, those of being part of... Um, not just community, but going to nice, seeing nice buildings like churches are, are pleasant buildings, those, those pleasant surrounds quite often. Um, so there, I, I see those as sort of side benefits, but just actually genuine benefits. The reason someone would join a religion, though, is should in theory be because they believe in the story of that religion. I think there are aspects of liberation in religion. Too. And this is like a fundamental thing for, for humanity, like your average person, you know, who's poor, you know, and by poor, I mean, anyone with less than a million bucks, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty high hurdle. <laughs> That's what, how many people in the world have less than a million bucks? I'm going to quickly Google that. That's going to be something like that. That has to be something like 95% of the world. Yeah, but... See, I, I don't think this is a distraction, but we need to talk about it more at some point. But I don't, we started to talk about what it would be like to have a billion dollars. Remember that? That was the last episode. Because I don't think people actually understand what it's like to have serious money. 
and what you can do and how you can live and who you get to talk to, who comes to your parties, what parties you get invited to, you know, um, what it's like to have your own island covered in three mansions and, you know, manicured lawns and awesome yachts and helicopters and planes to go back and forth to that island from your multiple awesome apartments around the world. So that's kind of what I was getting at. Like a million dollars is actually poor um, compared to the incredible wealth that some people have. Anyhow. Googled it. I just want to answer that bit of trivia. It says, what percentage of the population has a net worth of $1 million US or less? They say in the US there's, a, and this is December 2020, so only a month old. Less than a month, actually. Um, 11.8 million households have a net worth of $1 million. That's equal to 3% of the United States population and about 40% of the global millionaire population. So if you revert, calculate that, 12 million people, or 11.8, that represents 40%. Then you two and a half times it which gets you to 24, gets you to 30 million. 30 million people have a, a net worth on the total planet of, we're getting close to 8 billion these days. Right. People have a, a million dollars. So. That is very few people, hey? So those are basically the people who have made it in life and in the world. Yes, There's only 30 million people who actually can say that they've made it. Sent. Yeah, the rest of us are just poor and shit and we have to work and we have to worry about a boss and we have we feel depressed if our boss doesn't like us you know and we have to accept poor working conditions we can't just walk away from it most of us have a, a mortgage and we get stressed about failing to make the payments on that you know there's a more primal oh, issue with money and this 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 actually like liberation is is the primal thing here that this can be about this podcast and this this investigation and what you showed us in that compounding table. The result of that is not richness. You know, it's not being rich, sorry. It's liberation. It's being able to sit and it's being able to call bullshit on people. Because one thing you have to do if you're poor and you have to work and you have to please people is you have to accept bullshit. You can't just give someone the finger who's being an asshole because it's, you know, you might be excluded from the group or the tribe or you might lose your job, you know, and you might not be able to make these payments that you have to make to live. So there's so much, so many lies that we just have to not call people on. There's so much crap that we just have to put up with because we're not liberated. Um, I, I don't think the, the benchmark is a million dollars. I think it could actually be quite a bit less than that. Um, I think if you had... Let's say you had 500 grand and someone was giving you shit at work and there's a lot of jobs in the world these days. Um, you could, if you wanted to, say, look, punch them in the face, get fired and then um, find another job. That sounds like liberation to me. I mean, that's how you found this job, right? It, at no point do I actually literally endorse violence, but I will still say it. I think it's okay to say that that does sound like liberation to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I take your point, though. Financial stability or financial wealth is one quite critical aspect to a sense of well-being, I think. I know right. it can result in a false, um, false god for a lot of people continuing to chase massive amounts of wealth but getting back to your question yeah so i i got us off track a bit but the way that i 
characterize religion is as a source of liberation. We are, from a, a zoologist's perspective, and my favorite zoologist is Desmond Morris, who wrote The Naked Ape in the, the 70s, I think. You have a favorite zoologist? That's interesting. I do. Yeah, he's also <laughs> one of my intellectual heroes. My, my uh, Is he my number one intellectual hero? It would have to be Steven Pinker or Desmond Morris. And I, I they're about, both, uh, tell me. What about the guy that wrote Sapiens? What's his name again? Oh, Huval, Huval Harari. Yeah. He's, to me, to be a, a real... Right, you don't like him because he's... intellectual hero, you have to be provocative because there are sacred cows in, in civilization and society. And to be a hero, you have to be capable of killing those cows. And I don't think Yuval Harari Hariri has, he, he is an incredible intellect. And yeah, Sapiens and Homo Deus are fantastic books. And you have to read them along with Collapse and The World Until Yesterday by uh, Jared Diamond. Um, uh, yeah, but The Naked Ape is in a way scandalous because zoologists are not supposed to have humans in their crosshairs. Zoologists are supposed to um, respect the human religion that humans are not animals. And he breaks that rule and says the emperor has no clothes. And Steven Pinker did the same thing. Um, sorry, adding to the list of intellectual heroes, uh, Leda Cosmides and John Tooby, who, along with David Buss in the early 90s, basically um, uh, started evolutionary psychology. But what Stephen Baker is also uh, uh, an evolutionary psychologist, or at least takes that perspective on, on him. And what he, uh, he's got this really great TED talk where he basically points out that modernism and postmodernism have basically led to a withdrawal of um, uh humanity from the humanities because it's produced art that is not beautiful and why isn't it beautiful well we are animals we have a sensory system and a cognitive system inside a brain that consumes and combines and interprets those sensory input along lines that were defined by biological systems that cause survival you know like the, 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 best, um, the best sort of phrase from Pinker is that we love classical music or we love some forms of, forms of music because they are auditory cheesecake. What's a cheesecake? A cheesecake isn't filled with rocks and concrete and carpet for a reason. A cheesecake is designed to satisfy this biological system's search for fat and sugar in the environment, just like music is concocted to satisfy the auditory processing system and sensory apparatuses, pattern-seeking, evolved a system based on the survival of and, and reproduction from those that have survived because we have some systems that automatically process input and music satisfies what these systems are automatically searching for and the patterns that they're looking for. And that's why it's pleasurable for us to hear some things compared to other things. And it's all based on the fact that we have spent 10 million years in the homo genus evolving or exposed to the environment of evolutionary adaptedness, as these biologists say. So 
But, but isn't there plenty of modern art that is beautiful? And I would also um, just not, not to debate what you're saying, but I, more of a question. Isn't part of the reason that there's so much ugly art out there just simply market forces? And the reason that people need to do what we might call ugly art is because you've got to get a people's attention. Um, so you've got to be doing something new. I could you know, probably train for 30, 40 years and, and paint something that is classically beautiful. Um, I'm not saying I could replicate the Mona Lisa or something. You could um, practice enough to get to a classic landscape or a classic bowl of fruit or, or some other um, classical painting and have that produced as a form of beauty, but it wouldn't sell. And the reason it wouldn't sell is because, um, look, I don't know artwork that well, but. Yeah, I get your point. You um, do need to stand out in the marketplace and there's nothing worse than being in a straight jacket, jacket of conformity and feeling there's only one way um, to express beauty. Yeah, yeah, I, I get your point. Um, but at the same time, um, like in Pinker's TED talk, he was saying how the humanities have become less popular as modernism and postmodernism have pushed people in the direction of, uh, and let me try and find, I got a screenshot and I put it on Twitter, try and find, I, I guess, um, as we get towards the end, I, I wanted to sort of summarize what I'd gotten to in terms of understanding behavioral investing. I reckon and this is that universities could do is create humanity classes that are combined with either entrepreneurship or um, some sort of innovation or business degree, like some sort of hybrid between what you call arts or humanities and business entrepreneurship or IT innovation or something. Yeah, yeah, sure. Creativity, I've heard, is, is the one way us humans can uh, stay ahead of the machines is the, with the rise of machine learning and, and AI. Yeah. But, like, here's, here's a screenshot from what Pinker was saying. So modernism and postmodernism have produced visual art without beauty. So you've got, you know, things like, I don't know, the datarists at the turn of the 20th century who were, you know, a toilet, a gold-plated toilet was art. You know, you've got those, you know, classic abstract modernist paintings where, you know, a black canvas is, is art, you know. It's, it's not. It's not beautiful. It's visual art, yeah, but, a, you know, a, a black canvas, that's not beautiful. Uh, you know, it's also produced literature without narrative or plot. It's produced poetry without meter or rhyme. Um, and I remember, you know, remember those poetry clubs I was in, in in Brisbane and, you know, how you came along to one of them. You actually wrote a poem with a, a meter and rhyming and it sounded great, you know, and there's a reason for that. that I wrote that poem for you. <laughs> oh, thanks, darling. <laughs> <laughs> but none of the poems that I wrote had rhyme or, or meter. Um, there's, now we've got architecture and planning without ornament human scale, green space, or natural light. And like, what, what, is, what, are the, what is modernist architecture known for? Massive slabs of concrete that are just the opposite of, you know, it's, they're just cubes and they're massively oppressive. Um, we've got music without melody or rhythm. We've got criticism or literary criticism, especially was the ones he laid into. 
without clarity, attention to aesthetics and insight into human condition. So and what's the reason for that? Why are they created? Departure from recognizing human nature. And maybe it's liberation too. Like perhaps I think um because what did we have with um so there was at the beginning in the first half of the 20th century, we basically we had uh what did we have? <laughs> what's it called? Um you Nazism. Yeah, Nazism, but a big a feature of Nazism, but it was also it wasn't just the Nazis, it was respectable, respectable to have this opinion. Eugenics, that's right. So because of um it was basically a naive application of Darwinism and evolution. It was the it, and in a way with eugenics is actually rife in animal husbandry, but it was the application of animal husbandry and the eugenics that it's based on to humanity. Um, which led to the atrocities like what the, the Germans and, and the Nazis, you know, um, how they sort of decided to um, arrange their civilization, where basically they were just liquidating um, degenerates, what they, you know, so-called. Um, and maybe the second half of the 20th century and its entire denial of, um, of human nature and um, thereby, you know, the basis on which you eugenicist decisions were made maybe maybe that's that's why um there was this massive denial of human nature and the invitation to evaluate without regard to their biological characteristics and the the hard sort of um the the, the determinism that that invites about people's validity so maybe we can't be blamed for um uh for, for the emergence of, of postmodernism particularly um Definitely, I think hardly anything can be blamed in terms of a reaction to, um, yeah, these eugenics-driven atrocities. That's fine. But regardless, it, 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 a bit overboard is what Pinker said, sorry to interrupt. Like, so so you, you can't actually proceed. You, you can't get as far as you could in trying to help people and come up with government policies, for example, you know, um, uh, around mental health or how to design cities like there are just facts about how about the limitations of of humans that a zoologist would describe you know next to the the you know his functional description of how a zebra you know behaves um you know so i think there's and, and it's the same if we we're about investing here so we if if you accept that we have been evolving for 10 million years and we split off from Neanderthals 400,000 years ago um, and in its efforts to produce a biological system that was as viable as possible in the environment of evolutionary adaptedness, um, if, if we accept that through natural selection, there were some processing circuits, cognitive processing circuits, if you like, that biology sent us out into the world, born, pre-packaged with, without having to learn. If you accept that somehow we have been, we have a nature due to the perfectly reasonable response of this biological system to the environment and these repeated exposure, exposures over many cycles, over millions of years. If you accept that somehow there is a, a direction that we, we, we go in through this simple biological inertia, then you need to, if you want to perform highly and you want to do something well, you need to recognize, uh, you know, 
you need to recognize the, the, the dimensions of, of this biological system that we're trying to use in our case to, to make decisions around investing. And I actually wrote, wrote something in my summary about, um, let me just to try to, to summarize what this nearly $40,000 loss resulted in me doing. <laughs> so one of the, one of the things was, um, was to do this course and I learned how to do value investing. Um, but also I, and what it's done actually, this, this loss has prompted me to, to, to start to apply what I learned in my psych degree, which I've never actually done apart from in my master's uh, thesis that helped me to, to run that experiment and analyze the results and, and write the, the, the paper that I managed to publish. Um, but finally, you know, what this loss has, has made, uh, you know, prompted me to do is, is to use you know, what I know about psychology and, and use those skills that I have to do a bit of a literature review and actually to um, to investigate a bit more the, the one sort of passion that I got out of psychology, which was actually after I finished my degree, I, I discovered evolutionary psychology, which is basically it places psychology as a branch of biology. And I think that's key, you know, all psychology is, is a, a part of biology um, and it seeks to to investigate the mind as an emergent property of the brain which is a you know a biological you know it's a, a not a part of our organism so yeah I, I wrote a bit here i said humans are, are primates that have evolved in the homo genus for 10 million years and in the sapiens species for 400 thousand because of this they have a suite of instincts optimized to the environment to which they were most frequently exposed over these long periods the financial context is not offered uh, uh, frequent exposure relative, the, sorry, the financial context has not offered frequent exposure relative to the entire evolutionary career. For example, accounting has existed for only 1% of sapiens existence, 4,000 years. This means instincts specific to finance have not been, instead we must make do with more general purpose instincts or ones that do not directly relate to the challenge. There is evidence that the evolutionarily novel urban environment that more than half of humanity now lives in activates some instincts with false positive, positives. An example of this is the stress response, which is supposed to help us flee from certain death in the claws of predators by increasing immune system activity and heart rate and reducing metabolic rate and things like that. The problem is it can be activated in the queue at the supermarket or when one's portfolio drops in value. The result can be death from a heart attack or selling at the bottom. Here, a useful instinct in the jungle has been inappropriately deployed and thus produced less environmental fitness in the concrete jungle. Due in part to such misapplication of instincts, a low cost index fund outperforms all but the smartest active managers over the long term, for example, lifetimes. Curiously, the smartest active managers say that temperament, not intelligence, determines, the invest determines investment success. Quote, the most important quality for an investor is temperament, not intellect. You need a temperament that neither derives great pleasure from being with the crowd or against the crowd. Success in investing doesn't correlate with IQ once you're above the level of 125. Once you have ordinary intelligence, what you need is the temper temperament to control the urges that get other people into trouble in investing. Close quote. 
That's from Warren Buffett uh, in a July the 5th interview in 1999 uh, in business. So informed by the academic field of evolutionary psychology, we can be more technical than these observations about temperament and conformity. Using this field, the behavioral investor shall anticipate which instincts will be activated by false positives amongst stimuli from the investing environment. Further, the behavioral investor shall minimize such false positives and reap the reward of fewer emotional overrides of rational decisions. Additionally, indifference to social proof is noted in Buffett's statement. It is time to consider this characterization of Homo sapiens evolutionary environment by leaders from the field of evolutionary psychology, Cosmedes and Tubi. Quote, our ancestors spent well over 99% of our species evolutionary history living in hunter-gatherer societies. That means that our forebears lived in small nomadic bands of a few dozen individuals who got all of their food each day by gathering plants or by hunting animals. Each of our ancestors was, in effect, on a camping trip that lasted an entire lifetime, and this way of life endured for most of the last 10 million years. Generation after generation, for 10 million years, natural selection slowly sculpted the human brain, favoring circuitry that was good at solving the day-to-day -day problems of our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Problems like finding mates, hunting animals, gathering plant foods, negotiating with friends, defending ourselves against aggression, raising children, choosing a good habitat, and so on. Those whose circuits were better designed for solving these problems left more children, and we are descended from them, close quote. So it's as, as simple as that. You know, we basically, over 10 million years, have evolved a system that, as uh, much as possible, tries to automatically solve the problems of finding mates, hunting animals, gathering plant foods, negotiating with friends, defending against our, uh, ourselves against aggression, raising children, and choosing a good habitat. You know, so and it, it's all like they said, like we've basically been on a camping trip for ten million years, and then suddenly, you know, in the past, you know, blink of an eye, we sit at computers in concrete blocks that look terrible, which we access using a lift and we're entirely sedentary and we try to trade shares. <laughs> so yeah, uh, continuing with this, what I was, uh, what I wrote. So um, social proof is basically conformity and social proof was uh, mentioned with Lee Caldwell. Uh, so social proof is basically conformity, especially when it's unclear how to behave in a social situation. Buffett says it's important to be detached from the need to conform. In fact, to be indifferent to going with or against the crowd. So consider, you know, that we we basically have a bunch of instincts which anticipate that we will be in a small nomadic band of a few dozen people. So you know, when when you're sort of trying to survive with those people, it's important to to sort of act as a unit with them. You know, you need to you you you, you would there's going to be momentum or inertia in the direction of doing what they're doing um so already we are you know if if you're maybe that's why growth investing or the glamour stocks are so popular because that's what everybody else in the tribe is doing you know anyway so to continue with this uh so uh, buffett says it's important to be detached from the need to conform in fact to be indifferent to going with or against the crowd or the tribe in in evolutionary terms this could be seen as difficult to achieve in the evolutionarily normal context described above, 
that we had to figure out how to adapt to for 10 million years. Um, so, so yeah, what the, the rest of, so when I was doing my, um, my recap of, of season one, um, I, I wanted to sort of nail down that evolutionary uh, context for us to to show, I guess, the the equipment or the the yeah, yeah how how we are equipped and prepared and and the the momentum and inertia that this these circuits that have evolved over this time uh, uh, give us and and that we sort of bring to the table, as it were, when we literally sit down at our desk to to make decisions um, about investing. Um, so what what this system, uh, this biological system has, uh, has given us or, or what this means is that we have a dopamine-based rein reinforcement system. Uh, episodic future thinking or, or visualization uh, is effective for us. We have an automatic decision-making system, the autonomic nervous system. We have uh, system, uh, system one, we have system two, which is more reflective or calculatory. And as uh, Lee uh, mentioned, we have uh, a sort of imagination uh, or visual based um, uh, thinking system, system three, like he, 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 he called it. Um, but that seems to be the same as what uh, Tom was saying is episodic future thinking. Um, we're also biased and we have culture and geography as a source of those biases. And actually from that uh, investing course that you said I should do, there's a whole list of biases uh, uh, that I now know about and that I uh, write about at the end of each of my investing analyses. So I'll, I'll list off those biases at the end of this. Um, there's also uh, mindset also matters to, to us. And there's the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. And if you have a growth mindset, then, then you'll respond to, to failure merely as a source of information about how to improve and grow your skills so that you can become a better investor. Uh, because of what we are, the fact that we've been evolving all of this period and essentially come to the table without any real instincts um, to help us, dollar cost averaging is a good way to invest because you will invest regardless of what the market is doing and regardless of what your emotions are telling you to do. Uh, because of who we are and because of what zoologists say we are, we have a pendulum inside of us, basically, which was, it pushes us between fear and greed. We can program ourselves mentally, and that's actually something that um, uh, Tom, uh, the clinical psychologist, mentioned, You know, and that's the, the cognitive psychology um, perspective on our minds, um, but also, uh, what was his name? Uh, Ross Bentley, the racing coach. He also mentioned that we can program our, our we can have mental programs that kick in in response to mental triggers, um, which is another. So what I'm doing here is sort of listing off the first principles that I managed to, to, to lift out of the, the first season. Um, uh, Ross also mentioned that we need to not hold on to things we need to just let it go if we fail and have faith you know that there'll be another business that comes along that we can invest in if one that we've invested in not work another first principle is metrics so we need to have constant awareness of how we're doing compared to the mental image or the uh episodic future thinking that we've engaged in to try to imagine where we want to go it's useless useless to have 
those mental images without metrics that tell us precisely how far we are from that uh, imagined goal. Um, another first principle from season one is that the small capitalization market is inefficient. So the reason for that is basically that there's uh, more amateur investors who are investing in small cap companies and they're more prone to these emotional overrides because they're less aware of the things that we've discussed in this podcast. Um, it's also inefficient because there are just fewer skilled analysts. Uh, so mispricings persist for longer. Uh, anchoring is another, uh, I guess, psychological or a bias. So you can fixate on a price that the business used to have, thinking that you know it'll return to that, for example. Uh, we'll go through some other biases after this. And a final um, sort of first principle that I, I got from our uh, guests that, that matters because of you know, who we are and what our nature is, is journaling, um, simply because it provides some time and, and space to go over uh, and be honest about what decisions were that we made um, and gives you time to reflect. And that, you know, can, you know, inevitably reveal any, um, the basis for your, so yeah, that was a bit of a speech, but this is sort of where I am in trying to, most of my thinking has been to try to get the context right. And that context for me is what a zoologist would think about what we are. Um, so I'm, I'm really trying to, to get to these first principles, both in terms of um, biology or, or zoology and mathematics. Um, and what we, you know, I've also got uh, four formulae from first season. Do you want to do those now or do you want to do them um, in the next episode, given that this episode's gone for two hours? <laughs> it has, yeah. In, in terms of just, um, I, I guess because this episode was pretty much about, like it started off with the shame that I felt about losing these things and then I guess what I'm doing here is summarizing my, my response. Um, so it's, it's really, it's resulted in me sort of trying to leverage my, my interest in and knowledge about psychology. Um, but also I, I can say that, um, as part of my response, I've begun to learn some, some formulae that actually will help me in the long term dig my way out and actually make that money back and hopefully, you know, make more or make, make the gains that I was anticipating I would with my fear of missing out. In 2017 so i'm not going to you know describe them all but I'll, I'll, uh the details of them all but the four formulae that our investigations have sort of revealed are the exponential function or the compounding formula delayed discounting um which was also uh was a hyperbolic discounting that was they're both the same thing uh so there's a formula for that um there was this dinky little formula that ross had for in mental imagery so mental imagery with awareness um, will get us to the goal. He also had a formula for that. And then there's the ergodicity formula. So I'll, I'm not going to go into the details, but um, just as a catalog um, in terms of mathematics and um, biological first principles, I feel like, you know, I'm starting to assemble um, something here that can be used as raw materials for a, a framework that will mean that I don't get swept up in a fear of missing out. I don't have my emotions overriding my decision-making like 
they did, which did cause me to buy Bitcoin at the top at the end of 2017, um, and then fail to time the market across a bunch of shit coins, meaning that ultimately I lost $40,000 when I should have, if I'd just bought it and held it, had $250,000 by now. The, those formulas, I think they're very useful, not just in the sense of actually making a mathematical calculation. I don't think you would actually apply them for that, but just to have them staged out and segmented uh, and to be thinking about them. Obviously, the most important one for us, well, maybe that's not the right statement, maybe not the most important, but the one that we would probably use the most is the exponential function, calculating uh, the growth of something. Um, like discounting wasn't one that we really have applied in a mathematical sense. Um, I, I get the idea. Um, it's kept me out of the market. It's, we can, because delay discounting, the reason Tom brought it up is that the gains that we can make mean less to us because this, this $10 now is worth more than $20 in three months. So the, the gains that I could hypothetically make and that your spreadsheet from the first episode say that we will reliably make, that actually doesn't feel like a billion dollars now. It feel because it's so far away, it feels like 10 bucks. Yeah. No motivational power. Could you come up with a different example? Could you come up with... Well, what we actually need to do, Ben, is we need to plug what we need to do. And that's what I wanted to do during the interview with Tom. But because he'd never actually put the formula to work himself, I don't think he was prepared to do that. Um, I kind of put him on the spot. But what we should do is we should get this formula V equals A over 1 plus KD and we should put a billion dollars and 108 years into that and see actually what that feels like now, that billion dollars. And then we'll have the answer for why we're not putting our money into that system immediately. And that we can use that formula, that first principle, if you like, to then devise a framework for how we can motivate ourselves and how we can actually make that feel the full value of that billion dollars. Well, actually, Tom told us how we can feel that. We can use episodic future thinking and a, as you were trying to get at when I, despite me interrupting so much in the previous episode, uh, a systematic gradual series of smaller rewards. So let's just, you can mentally calculate it here because D is delayed to the re reward. We know it's 108 years. Yeah. A is the scaling factor. I don't know what the scaling factor represents. Neither do I. All right, we've got a problem then. Um, one equals to prevent V to prevent V approaching infinity as D approaches zero. I'm not sure what that means, but it's just the number one. And then A is the amount of reward, which we know is a billion dollars. So all we're missing to calculate it is K. So K, yeah. K as a scaling factor. Uh, well, if we assume K is is one, so that means 108 billion divided by. So I'm just going to put 108 divided by what uh, brackets one? Uh, I need a scientific. Well, it's times. It's K times D. Yeah. If you assume K is one, then D is 108. Then you get 108. So A divided by one. Isn't it? So A, 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 A is 108. A. A is a billion dollars, right? Sorry, it's not 108. So yeah. one bit. I'll put it all in. So 
one developed followed by nine zeros we're doing an american billion uh so it's an a sorry sorry yeah so one. it's one billion plus k times d and if you see is one and d is 108 yeah so i'm setting k as all right so I put so that's nine Three brackets between the one and the d okay so in the formula so it's a billion divided, divided. by brackets one plus brackets one times 108 is that correct so that's going to get yep. 109 so billion yeah so basically what it feels like is nine million dollars now that's that's what so delayed discounting makes a billion dollars in 108 years feel like nine million dollars now so i basically what it shows is that i am indifferent to that because i haven't gone and feverishly immediately engaged in the behavior that your spreadsheet says i should isn't that interesting so i need to find a way to make it feel like more than nine million dollars now nine million should attract you pretty pretty uh... yeah well obviously it doesn't because i haven't gone and immediately dumped all my money in an index fund and i'm not doing everything i can to put it more and more in each month i am uh, planning i think what you what we're missing and it's a critical thing from the conversation with tom is a plan with milestones milestones and goals and, and short-term rewards and long-term rewards that's right i think what we need to do is another episode where we apply as best we can everything that tom said us that we should do and we should do it the same with phil and the same with ross and uh yeah all of the other up on it yeah but because i got bogged down in zoology um and i was you know what this has also been useful for is it's helped me rediscover my love of psychology and finally i feel like i can apply you know um what i spent four years studying and I, what i've also felt a bit of shame about in not actually going on to having a career in psychology um but now maybe i can what about you you also studied Psych. Well, I did a four-year degree in Asian studies, and I don't speak Japanese anymore. Um, Shit, man. I know. I, I, I don't think you did though. At least you went to Japan and you lived there and you studied in, in Japanese. Mm. I tried to do psychology and I got burnout in ten months. Literally got burnt out. Never work in a regional part of Australia without support. Seeing seven or eight disability support pension applicants per day, you will very quickly have a black outlook on life very dark imagine if you're in their position sure well they all of those people god bless their souls they also had an incredibly dark outlook on life because they've been suffering for 20 years often a lot of them and then it came to me anyway who's this kid calls himself real waters telling me what assessing my life and my right to have a pension he doesn't know about pain out of university in four years and he thinks he can say whether I get pension or not. Yeah, that was really tough. But it, it did destroy my my desire to do anything to do with clinical psychology. I ran away screaming. I think it's okay to course correct. You know, you make the best decision. And that's what I tell myself with Asian studies. I made the best best decision at that point in time to to do it and to um, uh, learn the language and spend time in Japan. But at the end of it, I decided that it wasn't the right road to continue going forward. So I think it's a similar story with you and clinical psychology. You, you 
thought it was the best thing for you at the time, so you didn't do it and then you course correct. Yeah, well, and it's also like if I'd been honest with myself, and this is another key thing from my my life, you know, um, I knew I I bought David Buss's Evolutionary Psychology, the new or modern science of the mind textbook in 2007 after I finished my psych degree in 2006. And for the first time in my life, I read a psych textbook from start to finish. It was that one. And I, it was a revelation to me, evolutionary psychology, which is basically to say that I love biology and I loved the biologist's perspective on psychology. And I loved the idea of seeing myself studying psychology as just a branch of biology, because then that gives you access as a scientist to all of the tools and ideas and theories that biologists have to explain human behavior and just adds on a bit of extra stuff from psychology, you know, and that's what I was missing from that whole degree was the proper context. Anyway, I said that I'd talk about the biases. So what I learned from that course, Value Investing and Introduction by Professor Kenneth Jeffrey Marshall, (laughs) was that we have impetuosity, weakness, affinity, reciprocity, anchoring, authority, availability, cleverness, incomprehensibility, consensus, peculiarity, intermixing, consistency, confirmation, hope, lossophobia, scarcity, hotness, miscontrast, and windfall apathy as potential biases when we try to make it. So you saw um, uh, uh, anchoring was on the list and that was mentioned before, but windfall apathy was another one that was key for me uh, in dumping all that money into Bitcoin. And that's because I just spent four and a half years working in Kuwait where I was earning, you know, five figures a month. Um, so I, I, in a way that was because I, I basically saved all that money. You know, I'd spent probably actually, I think I spent about 60,000 bucks on on international travel, going and seeing all these wicked things around the world. And, you know, um, I, I also dumped all that money into Bitcoin because you did the I was sensitized to having money. You did the accessible tour. You went to Iran, to Korea, and um, I wanted to go to Iraq. Yeah, Iraq. Exactly. What 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 better expression of money to burn was doing an Axis of Evil ski tour, you know, and putting sixty grand into Bitcoin. Yeah. So windfall apathy was definitely at work as a bias, um, and yeah. Um, Do any of them cover fatigue? Um, you know, I'm sort of thinking along the lines of you are not finding companies that you want to invest in and so you start to get fatigue and therefore you find something that's close enough. Uh, there's one called weakness. So maybe I should explain them. So impetuosity is simply when urges override logic. So that's good old emotional overrides, um, fear of missing out. And yeah. You just let, I'd say pretty much 90% of Bitcoin trades were impetuosity, um, especially in the second half of 2017 and in the past couple of months um, with the latest run up to, to 40 grand US. Um, weakness is when passion overrides logic. So even when the framework says one shouldn't be buying it, you still knowing that you shouldn't be doing it, you still do it. So maybe... Um, in response to your question, weaknesses is a bias. Um, affinity is when we like something related to a business. Um, this can override the logic of, of not buying it. 
Reciprocity yeah. is, for example, if investment relations treats us nicely when we call them up and asking about the business, um, the feeling we have to be nice back to them can override the logic, uh, the logical need to analyze and then not buy um, the business. So just feeling like you owe them something. Anchoring, um, that's just because the stock dropped can override using logic to see if this lower price is cheap. So you're anchoring on a, on a higher price, the price it used to be, thinking that it will inevitably go up, back up to that. But you know that, that has nothing to do really with how much it's worth. Authority is just because someone authoritative says it's good um, can override logic. Availability is just because we can easily remember something about a business. Uh, this can override logical analysis about things that are hard to remember. It might be easy to remember because we just found out about it or because it was a highly emotionally valenced experience when we found out about it. Uh, cleverness, if we feel like Sherlock Holmes for analyzing this or owning it, it can override logic funnily enough. Incomprehensibility, if it's hard to understand, this can override logical analysis by making us think it must be too logical for us, therefore especially logical to buy. Uh, consensus, um, the herd can override logic. Um, I think consensus is something that's driven by our evolutionary, uh, the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, a significant part of that being uh, being in a small tribe. Uh, peculiarity is not being in the herd can also be about overriding logic. Um, so it's the, the opposite. So, so Warren Buffett in that quote about temperament said, you don't want to make decisions based on consensus or peculiarity, you need to be indifferent to those two biases. Intermixing, so stocks are the best performing asset class. Do not let the need for a new and strange asset class override this logic. And you um, alluded to that, Ben, when you were talking about, um, you know, not wanting to buy Bitcoin because it's not not a not an equity. Um, and doesn't give you dividends, for example. Uh, consistency. So logic can be overridden by wanting to do what we've always done or what we told others we just did. Logic should be about able to unmake a mind. Confirmation. Mere confirmation only of our beliefs can override logic. Hope. Confirmation bias due to hoping a business will do well can override the logical use of bad news about one to avoid invest lossophobia, the logic of still holding a business with a dropping price because its good fundamentals remain can be overridden by a fear of loss. So that was the classic one uh, when I when we did uh, Phil Wilkes's interview and I talked about Amazon um, and how the sales for Amazon were growing at 24% compounded, but the stock price had dropped uh, 90%. Um, well, you shouldn't be looking at the loss in the stock price. You should be looking at the fundamentals um, and not having your fear of loss uh, drive you out of the stock or out of the scarcity. Coveting forbidden or at least scarce fruit can override logic. The word oversubscribed can override logic, particularly in IPOs, you know, when it's a hot oversubscribed IPO, there's a lot of scarcity. That doesn't mean that it's good hotness. A feeling of being a master of the universe due to recently making some great trades can override logic. So just because you've made some great decisions doesn't mean you will make another good one. Miss contrast, the second last, just because a comparable analysis shows a business is better than some others can override the logic that a business should be good in the absolute sense as well as the relative sense. And I think that relates to 
oh, that's another answer to your, your question from um, before, Ben. And the last one with full apathy, we already um, discussed. Thank you for all of that. What, a, what an episode. Two, two hours and 40 minutes of absolute gold. <laughs> Keep this is the Joe Rogan of finance. <laughs> this, is, this is Joe Rogan of finance. Um, it's good we've given people a lot, of, a lot of listening content because you're going to be quite busy defending Donald Trump and his impeachment inquiry coming up. <laughs> arms on that um good luck shall we say farewell to everyone say goodbye will oh um also i wanted to say that um, say goodbye, the, you bastard. no 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 oh, there's one more sentence one more sentence because the first was putting putting ben to work right and you said that we have to we have to invest thirty five thousand bucks a year well i can say that I have now gotten to work and I've found a job in Qatar, which allows me to actually do this. So I can, without noticing, invest $35,000 a year because of the fantastic salaries here and the fact that I don't have to pay tax. Um, so we can actually do this. I can in real time, in real life, talk about actually now doing what you said we should do in episode so it's, one it's january now what what's your approach going to be is it dollar cost averaging in like once a yeah, month I can, I can just mechanically invest according to um what you said we could do and because of what lee colwell told us about um it's a, a non-ergodic system what you've proposed and there is sequence risk so there's a massive right skew in the 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 distribution of total returns so what what we began to do to address this issue that usually uh, the outcome is more like half a billion than a billion. And also because there's a massive right skew, it's, there's a potential for tens of billions actually from this system if you apply it and you manage to achieve a, a higher compounding rate. So because one not, thing we didn't... I'm not greedy, though. I'll, I'll, I'll satisfy with just a... Okay, yeah. Well, I, I would be too. And half a billion, you know, I could accept that. Um, but because we didn't really talk about in our season one recap, um, we didn't talk really much about what Lee said, but it was very useful uh, for him to give us that lecture on ergodicity and to, to, to temper our expectations a bit and also direct us to do what we could to move towards the right of that total returns tail. And I'll, I'll, for listeners who are not familiar, I'll put a link as we always do to the compounding sheet um, that Ben put together uh, with the modifications from, from Lee. And someone we also didn't talk about in our season one recap was Tom Perfremont. And he was also very useful as a beginning to introduce us to how to increase our compounding rate and get towards the right of the tail. So what we're going to do in, in season two now is interview a bunch of investors and people who have systems and products as well, um, like ETFs and, and platforms, to help us uh, at least attain in the context of sequence risk, because it's a non-ergotic system, uh, the billion dollars that uh, you promised to spend, um, which Lee thinks we can't reliably achieve at the moment by trying to move to the right of the total returns tail. And we'll do that by interviewing more people like Tom, Tom Perfremont um, and, and people who offer platforms for a fee 
um, and we will investigate those fees and whether in the context of those fees, we actually do move to the right of the tail. Right, nice summary to wrap things up. Thank you very much.